Hello and welcome to another episode of Simple Medicine's podcast. This episode is part of a multi-series discussing the world of microbiology focused on the human immune system and its various defense mechanisms against disease-causing pathogens. Please keep in mind the intent of this program is to discuss the latest medical innovations in patient care. None of the comments in our podcast are intended to be medical advice or to replace your physician's advice. It's important to discuss any ideas, procedures, drugs, or therapies with your physician first. The contents mentioned in this episode are used for the sole purpose of discussing the science behind certain chemistries as drugs, medical devices, or EPA-approved solutions. The content is not intended to be used for self-diagnosis and or self-treatment of any illness or health condition. All drugs and antimicrobials and antivirals should be used in accordance with your physician's strict advice and FDA or EPA-approved claims. Certain drugs manufactured by different companies may have various inactives, buffers, and pH levels which may provide different results from what's discussed in this podcast. Always discuss any health conditions with your physician and solely follow your physician's strict advice in management of your health conditions and illnesses. My name is Hoji Alimi, and this podcast episode is about the true story about an innovation in the world of medicine, once written in Forbes magazine as the holy water. This is part one in a multi-part series about the true story of hypochlorous acid, HOCL. According to many beliefs and religions, mankind was first created in heaven, and then, as a pair, they descended down onto planet Earth. This type of belief is actually not far from where and how mankind was originally created according to the world of astrophysics and biology. In order to look into the origin of mankind, according to science, you need to look deep into the sky and far, far away from our planet Earth. The distance you need to explore cannot be measured with miles or kilometers. Scientists measure the actual distance from one point in our galaxy to any other destination deep in space by first measuring how long and how fast one photon, a single light particle, can travel in one year in space. Therefore, the measurement is called light years. Light years, as compared to our measurement of distance on Earth, is comprised of greater distance, maybe billions or trillions of miles of roads, and multiplying it again by another billions and trillions of miles to ultimately create a single unit of measurement for long-distance travel in space. By this measurement, when you go millions and billions of light years deep into space, past our galaxy, there are stars and galaxies that are hanging in space like chandeliers, 
lightening the deep space. Each galaxy holds millions of stars that cast their bright light into their surrounding space. There are actually more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all beaches on our planet Earth. In deep space, scientists can witness how a star is born and at times they can document its death. When a star is born, there is a process where gases and other matters in the surrounding area condense. And when the same star dies, its death leads to an outward massive and violent explosion where the content of the star is then shot deep back into space. And this is the beginning of how life began on Earth, billions of light years away from our planet. Similar to how decomposing dead trees, animals, and so on become food for the remaining living organisms on Earth, the dying stars explode into fine particles and rays that will penetrate galaxies and planets billions of light years away, leaving precious chemistries behind, including on our planet Earth. This process continues even today and the future with every star that is born and dies. Carbon and many other important elements that are needed for life to start and evolve didn't originate on the planet Earth, but they arrived as stardust, which had fallen and continues to fall today from space onto our planet, replenishing the needed basics of life. As the result of the accumulation of stardust in an optimal environment, life began to form on Earth. It gave rise equally to both living and non-living things. Living things like cells, the smallest unit of life, began to form with its own unique metabolism to grow, thrive, and multiply on Earth. This gave rise to formation of multicellular organisms, like the animals we see today, marsupials, mollusks, mammals, and so on, occupying various parts of our planet. But just like the unwanted wood shavings and wood particles in a busy workshop where a craftsman is making a wooden piece of furniture, a small fragments of wood and wood particles are thrown everywhere. And in this case, biological particles and fragments began to pepper the planet Earth. These tiny particles were in form of small fragments of genetic materials, such as DNA, RNA, shaped differently from one another. They formed the biological dust that began to settle around us on our planet. These particles are also known as perions, and viruses and bacteriophage are not alive, so there is nothing there to be killed. Today's coronavirus, influenza virus, HIV and herpes and the list continues are part of this exact dust form of biological particles left behind. Dead pieces of floating particles in the air and on our planet 
these viruses don't consume food. They don't create waste or seek a mate to propagate. They have no nervous system. They don't think, strategize, feel pain or happiness. They are just biological sand, invisible to our naked eyes, floating in the air, traveling sometimes under the back of other animals and humans, often sit on tiny droplets of particles of water in the clouds, traveling from one place to the next or one continent to another until they find their new home in new places. Viruses do not pose an infection in every animal, but they are very specific looking for an exact host. They are on a mission. Even amongst humans, some viruses don't infect all mankind equally. For example, some viruses only infect those individuals with Asian descent and not others. Other viruses can be more general, like chickenpox and flu viruses, which impact nearly all people. Even in the world of germs and microbes, some viruses only infect bacteria and not humans while others seek birds and other prey. In the late 1800s, it was thought that all infectious agents could have been filtered out of a liquid solution. But in late 1800s, a Dutch microbiologist repeated experiments and was able to draw the conclusion that even filtered solutions may contain a new form of infectious disease which was later named virus. Just like all species, viruses also come in different types and shapes, which helps scientists to classify them in families and group of viruses. Those viruses that they penetrate human body, upon entry, they will use our massive and very sophisticated biological machinery to reproduce more of the same exact copies of themselves. Our bodies literally become a copy machine. Once more copies of the same virus is produced, then the whole cell, just like a dying star, will naturally explode outward, allowing the clone zombie-like non-living copies of the viral particulate to spread out into the environment and the cycle of infection and reproduction of the same copy of the virus continues. But viruses amazingly also change and adapt as the infected host immune system goes after them. The virus initially hides within the cell and safe from any attack by the host immune system. But once the cell is triggered to duplicate copies of the virus, it will eventually, similar to the dying star in the galaxy, will explode, and thus releasing millions and billions of more copies of the same exact virus inside and onto the host. But more importantly, the virus can and will eventually change its structure and how it appears to our immune system, making it harder for the immune system to document its structure and send its soldiers the white blood cells to destroy it. It's a CSI episode involving the cups, our immune system, and the heaps, copies of the virus. Just like the superheroes in a movie, the virus has the supernatural ability to mutate, 
which makes it harder for the body's immune system, as well as scientists in the labs to track the virus and destroy it. The threat of coronavirus with hundreds dead cannot be compared with the aftermath of emergence of the next mutated version of the same virus if the virus can mutate and become more viral with crazy capabilities to change host or expand its target host to include other animals. In 1980s, doctors had biopsied the HIV-positive patient and discovered two different strains of HIV virus present in the same patient. One form of virus residing in the patient's gut, which differed from the virus isolated from the same patient's blood sample. The virus has mutated, thus the medication administered to the patient had to be modified to cover the mutated version of the HIV virus, as well as the original copy of the infecting virus. HIV patients are thus treated with a cocktail of multiple drugs involving several different medications targeting the same virus. The nightmare for virologists working at CDC is how a strain of virus may mutate, how fast such mutation may occur. The mutation may change the virus's original mechanism of infection, as well as which host or hosts it will infect. For example, a viral strain that often is passed through handling of the surfaces, can it possibly go airborne and change hosts from monkeys to humans or from humans to other animals, thus spreading the virus even with a greater magnitude? Each year, more than 100 million children and adults, adults are immunized against the potential threat of flu virus in the U.S. alone. But the flu virus doesn't sit idle. It changes each year and it can introduce a new mutant form or multiple in the environment. Scientists at CDC must estimate and come close to the exact viral code that is going to be in the coming year and begin to build the immunization vials to save lives. A simple miscalculation can lead to the death of thousands, if not millions. The effectiveness of accuracy of these immunizations were only 19% in 2015 and 2016, while other years the numbers reached closer to 60%. We cannot manufacture 100% vaccines against flu viruses. Therefore, immunization against viral infections are difficult to reach 100% immunity for patients receiving the vaccination. We are also not viral-free at all times. Many strains of different viruses can reside in and on our bodies, but only cause an infection if triggered. Such triggers are based on factors such as environmental changes, such as changes in temperature, levels of stress in the host, comorbidity, meaning if the host is suffering from multiple medical symptoms, thus weakening his or her immune system, amongst others. The colder temperatures in the fall and winters can trigger certain virus to attack our system more often than during warmer temperatures in the spring and summer times. When cold sores heal, the viruses aren't gone, but they will continue to reside deep inside the cells and they are only triggered, awakened and multiply and burst into an ugly sore when the conditions are right. Viruses 
see no boundaries and learn the best bypass or routes to evade our immune system. Viruses are not exclusively harmful to us, just as we have learned to harness the power of sun, wind, and water to best generate energy, for example, we have also learned to harness their power of infection to deliver medicine. We can improve the production of biologics and drugs as well as to help deliver the badly needed drugs inside patients with greater specificity and precision, otherwise not possible. As medicine has evolved, we have learned to harness the power of viruses to treat certain diseases, including certain types of cancers. Vast number of companies are using viruses to carry required genes and medications as a treatment option when infecting patients. For example, instead of a given virus injecting its harmful viral DNA into our cells, scientists change the virus's DNA to instead infect our body with a therapeutic gene that would help stop or treat a disease. There are three main branches of viral therapy so far and more to come. Anti-cancer, oncolytic viruses, viral vectors for gene therapy, and viral immunotherapy. Just as we have black people, white, Asian, Latinos, short people, tall people, people who can jump high and those who can't, viruses come in different shapes, forms, and level of infectivity. From my 30-year-old memory of virology course I took back in my college years, viruses are classified into four groups based on their morphology or shape. Some are filamentous, others look isometric, many viruses have envelopes, and some actually have a head and tail looking like a Martian spaceship that is about to land on its target. If the virus's shape is destroyed or damaged, it can no longer infect its host. Not all viruses infect our entire body. Some can attack very localized areas like hepatitis C virus, which attacks our liver, or genital herpes and oral herpes that cause more localized infections. Other viruses, such as noroviruses, can cause gastrointestinal disease. And others can cause rubella, measles, smallpox, and so on, and other diseases such as meningitis and polio and rabies that are also caused by viral infections. Many viruses are easily destroyed. HIV viruses can only survive for a few minutes on dry, hard surfaces, while other, other types of viruses can last up to days, like coronavirus, COVID-19. Virucidal agents are also effective in eradicating certain viruses, and some viruses are harder and more resilient than others to succumb to destruction. Virucidal agents are chemical substances that attack and inactivate viral particles outside the cell. In general, this is accomplished by damaging their protein shell or the substance penetrates the core itself, but it destroys the actual genetic material encapsulated within the virus. In contrast to viruses, bacteria are alive. Bacteria actually need nutrients. They metabolize and intake food and produce waste. They can reside in a solitary life form, laying on surfaces 
or they can build complex towns that they are protected with great walls where antibiotics and other chemicals cannot penetrate these protective structures and walls. In these tiny towns called biofilm, different bacteria will hold different responsibilities and jobs. Some are tasked to bring in nutrients into their colony, while others must remove the waste to outside of the protective walls of their town. Simple biofilm example would be the slimy surface formed in your dog's dirty water bowl when not cleaned for days. These biofilms can be formed on our skin, in our mouth, around our tooth, inside wounds, in the lining of our gut systems, waterways, in the open environment, on buildings and structure, and even on those medical devices such as reusable endoscopes causing infections as using new procedures if they are not cleaned correctly. Bacteria does not have brain, so it is remarkable how they form these sophisticated communities and take on new roles and responsibilities, mutate and adapt. Learning how to travel from one continent to another, riding on microscopic water droplets or particles miles above the earth. We truly know only about very limited aspects of what exists and how it works, challenged by a universe that is infinite in size and is diverse. It's important to note that as human species, we could not live and survive without these microbes and viruses around us. I know this sounds contrary to many beliefs, but in reality, many of our body functions depends on these tiny microscopic creatures to help us survive, feed our bodies, and function. Because not all bacteria are harmful to us, just like we rely on bacteria in our gut system to digest food and make nutrients available to our tiny network of blood vessels that we carry the needed micronutrients to every part of our body. In nature, onto the roots of the trees deep in the soil, certain bacteria also reside on top of the fine tree roots that spread deep into soil, searching for water and nutrients. These roots could not otherwise break down and absorb the nutrients within the soil and would have otherwise perished if it was not for the bacteria that reside near their root system. Bacteria absorbs and breaks down the required nutrients from soil and provides the roots of a tree. In turn, the tree provides other chemicals to the bacteria that are essential to their survival. This type of relationship is not parasitic, but symbiotic, meaning both organisms benefit from one another. Our existence and survival also depends on our symbiotic relationship with vast number of bacteria in and are outside of our bodies. Once we perish and die, the good and the bad bacteria will help decompose our body and provide the nutrients back to the nature. While we are alive, our bodies need to protect itself against the bad bacteria, the kind that may cause us harm by forming an infection. Our immune system is comprised of several lines of defense, one lined up behind the next line, aiming to kill any harmful bacteria should they evade 
one or more lines of our immune system, ready to ultimately and eventually destroy them. Every line of defense is equipped with a different type of soldiers, cells, and equipment to protect us. Imagine the army of bacteria attacking our system constantly to find a weakness in the line of defense to penetrate our immune system, organize and well-adapted lines of defenses, constantly fighting off infections. Our immune system doesn't only fight off infection, but also cancer. Every hour, many of our newly manufactured cells show up as faulty. They become cancerous. We are not cancer-free and never have been. We develop cancer almost every day and every hour. These cells send an internal SOS signal for certain enzymes to come to rescue. Our DNA unwinds while tiny machineries and enzymes go at work correcting the bad genes, replacing them with the correct genetic codes or get rid of dimers and misfoldings which would have caused cancer. For the cells that cannot repair themselves, then they are found by neutrophils or white blood cells and they are destroyed. But our immune system is always on full alert. It does not rest even when we are resting. On the surface of our bodies, very specific bacteria are attached. There are billions of them covering every nut and cranny of our skin. Just like how honeybees protect their nest against invading wasps, which targets to kill the honeybees and take over their nest, honeybees come together to form a crowding effect, literally covering every part of their nest by sitting next to one another to form a physical protective layer. While wasps will take one honeybee at a time to kill, the remaining honeybees remain calm, and instead of frantically flying around, in synergy, they begin to flap their tiny wings. This movement causes the overall temperature in the honeybee's nest to rise and ultimately kills or deters the remaining wasps from attacking the nest. The bacteria called Staphylococcus act the same way on the outside of our skin, forming a defense mechanism against intruders as honeybees form a crowding defense mechanism against wasps around their nest. This creates a mechanical shield against any other pathogen that is trying to land on our skin. Staphylococcus protects our other skin layer by mass producing themselves to cover every part of our skin, so no other bacteria could find an exposed and clean part of our skin to attach themselves to it. The first line of defense in our immune system is the crowding effect by bacteria, and Staphylococcus has taken this evolutionary responsibility to shield us from other bacteria in our environment. Just like a crowded bus where no one else can get onto the bus, our skin is crowded by a Staphylococcus, not allowing others to get onto our skin. Many who overwash and clean their hands will eventually see sores and infections on their hands appearing simply because we are destroying the tiny protective bacteria and harming and creating exposed areas of skin that are now left vulnerable to infection. Our body provides nutrients to these tiny bacteria 
so they can thrive and multiply and crowd our skin, thus making it impermeable to other bacteria which may land on us when we touch contaminated surfaces in our environment, including doorknobs, subways, or when we shake hands with someone with contaminated or dirty hands. The next line of defense includes soldiers or cells that they are called Langerhans cells. Beneath our skin, these immune cells crawl in and out of our skin, looking for the next victim to devour. Langerhorn cells suddenly push our skin cells aside and come to the surface and grab the bacteria and pull them underneath our skin to eat them alive. Just like scary movies, a monster reaching out from the ground to catch its prey and then dragging it below to eat it, Langerhans cells will do just that. There are billions of them crawling in and out of our skin, protecting us from bacteria who could push aside the first line of defense, the crawling effect by Staphylococcus. And sometimes Langerhans cells may grab onto good bacteria and eat and devour them as well. But the protective bacterial layer by Staphylococcus can also become opportunistic and cause infection if you are accidentally injured. The world of biology is similar to how the world of business is conducive to new opportunities. Two friendly businesses at times can become competitors and enemies focused on their very own interests. The symbiotic relationship only works if neither organism is injured or compromised. A simple cut can invite Staphylococcus and other bacteria to infect the exposed tissue. In this case, other cellular soldiers known as neutrophils or white blood cells will come to the aid. They will search, find, and engulf the infecting bacteria. Once the bacteria is engulfed, it is kept in a sac within this white blood cell where the white blood cell produces a simple chemistry known as hypochlorous acid. The cell combines a single chlorine to a water molecule and removing one of its oxygen molecules. The final product is hypochlorous acid or HOCl. The white blood cell accomplishes the production of HOCl through combining two chemistries, an enzyme known as myeloproxidase and hydrogen peroxide. But in simple terms, our body is made of water and contains salt, amongst other things. And our bodies have learned over millions of years of evolution how to use the combination of these two chemistries to fight any infection. Long ago, people used salt to prevent meat from rotten when refrigeration was not available. The power of this chemistry has been advantageous for us because no bacteria or virus can ever mutate and become resistant to HOCl. Why? Because when blood cells fire HOCl at the bacteria or virus, it is like firing a shotgun, where a single shot breaks into multiple bullets coming at the same target. HOCl similarly breaks into various chemical bullets, such as chlorine monoxide, chlorine dioxide, a hydroxide, ozone, and the list goes on and on. Each chemistry attacks its target differently, and the attack takes place in nanoseconds and is lethal, and the final damage is irreversible.
HOCL is the most potent antiviral and antibacterial chemical on the planet Earth that can destroy any type of bacteria, virus, fungi, and spores, including those who have developed resistance to our arsenals of antibiotics. HOCL is only produced by animals and humans' immune system. I first came to learn about HOCL in late 90s. A nuclear physicist has developed the machinery to produce an unstable form of hypochlorous acid. The idea was similar to synthesizing insulin and injecting it into type 1 diabetic patients to help them manage their glucose level. In this case, we would synthesize HOCL and delivering this anti-infective into patients' cavities during surgery, lung infection, nasal cavity, oral, as well as applying it on patients' skin and wounds. Soviet Union's military in the 80s and 90s had an earlier start on the same technology. They had developed a different electrolysis method to generate HOCL, while Japanese had a more advanced version of the same technology. However, both versions while produced hypochlorous acid, the product was not stable enough to be bottled and shipped into the market. So the technology needed significant improvements in order to produce it as a novel drug. The journey simply needed another 20 years of development, and I will talk about this more in detail later. In the meantime, antibiotics continue to help with the treatment of infections, and there is still our first line of defense as both treatment options as a prophylactic use and for prevention of infection and treatment option to treat an existing infection. The structure and functionality of antibiotics at molecular level works like a lock and key concept. On the outside of bacteria, there are many protein structures. Proteins are similar to brick and mortar used in many communities to build housing structures and buildings. In the world of biology, proteins are the building block of many creations that are often invisible to our naked eyes. Proteins are used in building new cell structures, help cells with their metabolism. Proteins are used to manufacture enzymes which are used to maintain our metabolism. They can carry nutrients in our body, form hormones amongst other functions. Proteins also help shape landing sites, or what we refer to as receptors, on the outside layer of bacteria. These receptors are very delicate in nature and unique to receive specific chemicals and nutrients from the environment. Therefore, pharmaceutical companies develop specific chemicals called antibiotics, which target specific receptors or landing sites on the bacteria. Once the chemical or antibiotic binds to the specific receptor on the outside of bacteria, on the internal side of the cell membrane of the same bacteria, the protein receptor extends and is attached to other chemical carriers. Once triggered on the outside, it will send a message. The carrier protein initiates and triggers a chemical cascade of events inside of bacteria that leads to complete shutdown of bacteria's metabolism and leads to final death. Bacteria are a very diverse group of living organisms. Some live on our bodies and on the linings of our gut. Others live within or on the soil. Some bacteria even live in the deepest parts of the oceans, some near hot vents, where temperatures can actually reach 
up to 750 degrees Fahrenheit. Bacteria also live in some environment that is poisonous to us and other creatures. Bacteria can live in environments that contain sulfuric acid. They can travel onto tiny microscopic particles that act like airplanes, transporting them from one continent to another. Single like form, as well as in colonies, where they develop a specialized roles and responsibilities to handle the colony's functions. So it's not far-fetched to understand that bacteria can also develop resistance to our precious drugs and antibiotics. The overall use of antibiotics in vast number of facets of our economy, including the use on farm animals, on crops, the discharge of antibiotics into our waste waterways, has caused the bacteria to be exposed to low levels of antibiotics, thus giving them the opportunity to change, mutate, and adapt and become resistant to our very own antibiotics designed to protect us against bacteria. These mutated versions of bacteria are the ones which we badly want to get rid of in our hospitals, clinics, causing millions to die each year. Now they are weaponized against our antibiotics that designed originally to kill them. Once they mutate and change, they begin to repopulate our crops, cattle, on our poultry, on people in our communities. As they would use the tiny particles miles above the earth to travel, they use us and other animals to carry them from place to place and eventually they would find their way into our hospitals and surgery rooms where patients are no longer safe. As people get sick and go to hospitals, they carry these superbugs with them into the hospitals where they are seeking medical help. We are the carriers, the mules, helping transport these superbugs, these new forms of resistant bacteria from our communities into our hospitals and clinics. Superbugs can be transferred not only by patients, but by the very nurses and doctors who reside in our communities because this bacteria resides on their hands, skin, in their nasal cavities, and their guts. It's not only the emergence of resistant bacteria which is an issue, but the rapid rate which bacteria can now become resistant to our new class of antibiotics. When bacteria showed resistance to the very first antibiotic during World War II, penicillin, it took bacteria nearly 10 years to make the biological change and become resistant to penicillin. Today, bacteria change and become resistant within months. Bacteria are rendering our arsenals of antibiotics ineffective at such an alarming rate. One of the last antibiotics developed and launched by a company called Cubist out of Boston, doctors documented resistance to that specific antibiotic within 10 months in a hospital in England. Such a rapid rate of mutation has shortened the time for an antibiotic to remain effective in the market and for the company to recover its development cost. Because drug development on average may cost a whopping $2 billion, and if the drug fails in months, the company has lost billions and may not be able to even develop the next generation of such drug. Furthermore, the Affordable Care Act mandated that hospitals may not be reimbursed for the cost of treatment of infection if such infection 
was nosocomial infection, meaning occurred or caused in a hospital. At the same time, hospitals do not have the effective antibiotics to fight off the resistant bacteria being carried into their facilities on a daily basis. Hospitals are relying on highly potent but also possibly damaging and toxic antibiotics left as last resort that may cause damage to kidneys and other forms of our organs in patients. The choice between saving a life or damaging their organs is a difficult decision for a physician to make. For more information, please visit simplemedicines.com where we are building a community of experts and patients to continue our discussion. In future episodes of this series, Hoji will continue to discuss the diverse world of microbiome and microbiology as it relates to human biology. Thank you.